Happy New Year. It's good to see all of you here this year for the first time and uh, hopefully not the last time. And uh, This morning we're going to do things a little differently. Maybe you've already figured that out because we didn't go right into communion. We're going to take communion a little bit later, so we didn't forget it, okay? Um, we'll get to it here in a little bit, and I hope that as we take communion this morning, because of the message, that it will have a little bit more significance to you this morning. You know, I grew up in church, and growing up in church, we called our weekly weekend gathering the worship service. And I never really thought much about that phrase or that word worship as a kid. Um, We had bulletins, just like we do now, and on the inside of our bulletin, uh, typically right here on the inside was something that I think probably every church in that era had. Anybody, any guess what was there? Yeah, the, the order of service, right. The order of service. That's what was our, in ours. In ours, actually, we didn't call it the order of service. It was the worship order or the order of worship. And again, I never really even thought about what that meant. Worship. What, what is worship? Well, worship, I think, is a pretty easy idea to get our minds and our heads and our hearts around because it's something that we do every day. It really is. It's something that we do every day because worship is really at its core just to simply recognize something's worth. That's what worship is. It's what it really means. It means worth-ship. Worship is just to recognize something's worth. And the interesting thing about humans is that we've been worshiping things, stuff, from the very beginning of time. We've been worshipers from the very beginning of time. From the beginning of time, whenever tribes would get together or, or people got together or family groups got together. They just they instinctively looked up to the heavens and they knew that there was something out there that was, that, that was controlling what was happening around them. And so consequently in the ancient times, people believed in multiple gods and, and they looked to the gods and they recognized these gods and they valued these gods and because if it wasn't for the gods, then, then they wouldn't survive. They looked to the gods to send the rain and they looked to the gods to make sure that their children were healthy. And, and they, they were always trying to figure out that magic combination of, of how do you get the gods to play along with, with what you want the gods to do? How do you get the gods to favor your family? And, and that's just the way the world thought in ancient times. And so over time, worship for ancient people, it revolved around this idea of sacrifice. They would, they would sacrifice animals trying to get the attention of the gods. Somehow they made this connection between the spilling of blood and, and getting the gods' attention. And, and so they would sacrifice things. And, and sometimes, as they went along, it turned out that the more uh, valuable the blood that was being spilled, the, the more easily you might get the gods' attention. Maybe the gods would, would pay more attention. And so as a result of that, a lot of times in ancient cultures, they would begin to sacrifice people. They would sacrifice animals, but then if they really wanted to get to God's attention, they would sacrifice people. And so they would sacrifice their enemies. And then they would sacrifice sometimes people of their own tribe. And if they really wanted to get the God's attention, they would sacrifice a child. Sometimes their own child. Most likely a teenager around 14 to 16 years old that thought they knew everything. Um, you know, those kinds. But all of that was in, in an effort to, to gain the favor uh, and the undivided attention and the blessings of the gods. They wanted to keep the gods happy. And so sacrifice was essentially a bribe because the gods were holding all the cards. The gods controlled when it rained. The gods controlled when there was a famine. The gods controlled everything. They held all the cards. And so there was this constant guessing name of, game of what do we need to do now and, and how do we get the gods to recognize us and bless us. And, and figuring that out was very tricky especially in ancient times, but fortunately for, for ancient times, for people in the ancient times, there were people like me. You know, there, there were 
the, the priest and the witch doctors and, and, and the holy man who, who knew all the secrets to the gods and knew what would keep the gods happy and knew what the gods wanted and, and all of those sorts of things. And, and, and I guess the thing that strikes me as interesting about that, that it was just, there was always a parallel between making the gods happy and keeping the priest happy. Right? Like if you kept the priest happy, then the gods were happy. And, and I don't know, that just seems odd to me that that's how it worked. But, but that's what they did. There was just this system where, where they would go to the witch doctors and the priest and the holy man and they would tell them what to do. And usually it was for the benefit of whoever they were talking to. And then you get to ancient Jewish worship. Now, Jewish worship was a little bit different. It, it was similar in terms in, in the way that they included animal sacrifice. But why they sacrificed was very different than why the nations around the ancient Israelites made sacrifices. Sacrifice for the ancient Jews was not a bribe. In fact, the Jews were not trying to bribe God into doing anything for them because they had something that, that none of the other nations around them had. And this is so important for where we're going today in the message. They, they had a contract or a covenant with God that God actually initiated through, through this nation, through Moses. And, and God essentially said, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 28 if you want to go back and read it later. But Deuteronomy 28, it's really kind of the hinge that, ex, that helps explain God's relationship with the nation of Israel. And God said, hey, you're going to be my people. All right, you're going to be my people. You don't have to bribe me. You, you are already my people. You are in with me. But I'm going to give you this written law, and this written law is going to tell you how you're supposed to treat each other and how, how you are to behave. And so they had a covenant and a written law that was given to this nation so that they would know how to behave. And, and God would say, hey, I'm going to give you some land. I'm going to give you your own land, and you're going to go into this land. But, but again, here's this law that's going to tell you how you're supposed to behave in this land. Because the people there, they're not going to behave like you. They're, they're different than you, and, and you need to be different than them. So, so here's this law, here's this contract, and, and you're going to be my people. But I'm just going to tell you this. If you misbehave, you'll still be my people. I will still love you, but I will kick you out of the land. Now, if you've got small children at home, this is basically how timeout works, right? It's like, hey, I, you're my son, and I love you, and, and I will always love you, but you go stand over here away from the family until you can come back and be a part of this family, right? You just Until you learn how to behave, you go stand over there. Isn't that what, what time out basically is? And that's what God was saying is, look, look, you don't need to bribe me. I, I will love you, and I will always love you, and you're going to be my people, but I will flat put you in time out. And the interesting thing about this was that the law that God established with Israel it was remarkable. It was way, way, way ahead of its time. It was, it was brilliant. It actually taught Jewish people how to treat each other, how to, how to treat foreigners, how to treat their servants. It, it forbid, they said, you can make animal sacrifice, but you cannot sacrifice people. Even your teenagers, you cannot get rid of them. You can't sacrifice them. And this, this law, this moral code that they had, it set them apart from the surrounding nations. And, and it was this law, it was this code that, that, that changed the way that these ancient people approached worship. Because Israel's God, and again, this is so important, Israel's God, the Jewish God, even from ancient times, he was more concerned with obedience than he was with sacrifice. The ancient God, our God, this Yahweh God, Yahweh God, sorry, I can't say that today. This, this God was always more concerned with obedience than he was with sacrifice. All the pagan nations, the surrounding nations around Israel, it was about sacrificing to the gods to get the gods' attention, to, to get the, the gods' favor. The, the pagan gods, they didn't care how you treated your wife or your husband or your kids or a foreigner or a slave. They didn't care because the pagan gods were just about, it was all about bribing them to make sure it rained and the crops came in or that you were victorious in battle. But the Jewish God, Yahweh, he was different. He was less concerned with sacrifice because he could not and he would not 
be bribed. In fact, King Solomon, that we're, I think, probably mostly all familiar with, he said this, he summed it up this way when, when he wrote, he said, to do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. To do what is right, obedience, is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. You see, Israel's sacrificial system, it wasn't designed to keep God happy. It wasn't. Israel's sacrificial system was designed to make atonement for sin. This is something that nobody else in the ancient world understood. Because their approach to God was so different. Their approach to worship was so different. Atonement, though, it was and it is. It's about making reconciliation. It's about bringing two parties together. Making peace between two parties. The the Hebrew word for atonement, it actually means to cover. to, To cover something. And so atonement in the ancient times in the Jewish festivals and in the Jewish religion, it was to cover something bad, namely a sin. It was to cover something bad with something good in order to restore a relationship. And so a big part of Jewish worship, and even though it involved animal sacrifice and spilling blood, it wasn't to bribe God, it was to reconcile with God. And so day after day and month after month and year after year, individual Hebrews and individual Jews, they would, they would cover their sin by making a costly animal sacrifice or a grain sacrifice or a grain offering at, at the temple or, or somewhere else where, where they could do that. And then they would have to make restitution to the person that they sinned against. And throughout the year, the Jews, they, they would offer sacrifices to atone for their personal sin. But then something really unique and fabulous would happen. Once a year, the Jews would gather from all over the nation, and in some cases all over the world, and they would come to Jerusalem, and they would get as close as they could to to the temple. And if you knew somebody, or if you were somebody, you could get to be a part of the Temple Mount and and see this up close and personal. And they would celebrate what was called the Day of Atonement. And once a year, the nation would would gather in this this very multifaceted festival that had lots of different parts and moving parts, and they would celebrate this Day of Atonement. Where, where they, as a nation, would repent of their sin. As, as a nation, they would ask God to forgive their national sin. And, and they, would, they would ask God for forgiveness for sins from the past. And maybe even, perhaps, sins that they didn't know that they had committed. And, and they would do this, you know, as a nation. Think about what that would look like in our country. If, as a nation, like, we all gathered together to ask God to forgive us for our national sin. I mean, think about what a difference that could make. And, and so they would do this. And as part of that celebration, as part of that festival, something very powerful would happen. At some point in the day, the high priest would come out and he would get a goat and he would place both his hands on the head of the goat. And this was symbolically their way of saying, I am now placing all of the sin of this nation, the nation of Israel, on this goat. And then someone would be assigned to lead that goat down the stairs and off the Temple Mountain, into the valley and through the streets and through the village and outside the gate, through the walls and through the people who are living outside of the walls. And they would lead this goat into the wilderness and there they would abandon it. And this was symbolically them saying that God has taken our sin and he has removed it from us as a nation. He has taken it to the wilderness and we are now sinless as a nation for a whole year, for one year. And then the next year they would come back and they would do this again. They would repeat this cycle and it was just a a cycle that they did every year. And so Jewish worship was essentially, it was a temporary fix because it was only good for a year. It was a temporary fix for a problem that required an ultimate solution. But, But Jewish worship, the other thing that it did was it pointed to what God was up to in the world. God was doing something, about to do something very different. And this system that was designed to make atonement for sin, it pointed to what God was about to do. It pointed to a time when God would bring the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. 
And from pagan worship, where, where they sacrificed to, to get the attention of God and to get the blessings of God, God chose a nation to get the attention of the world. And he spoke in terms to that world to, to, for them to understand that there is a God who desires sacrifice and he desires allegiance. But more than any of that, he desires obedience. He would say, here's how I want you to behave. Here's, here's how I want you to behave toward each other. And if you offend me by offending someone that I love, then not only will you have to make atonement for sin toward me, but you will have to make restoration toward your brothers and, and your sisters. No other, no other group had that kind of moral code. And year after year, the Jews would do this. They would make their pilgrimage to the temple, and they would, they would atone for their sins. And then once a year, they would gather as a nation to make atonement for their sins as a nation. But then something extraordinary happened. One afternoon, around the year 30 A.D., a man comes seemingly out of nowhere. The gospel writer Matthew says he came out of the wilderness. And he spoke in terms that sounded like a prophet. But he didn't look like a prophet. In fact, he, he looked like somebody you probably wouldn't invite over for dinner. In fact, you'd probably want to keep your distance from him. But he had a very powerful message, and he said this. He said, God is about to do something new in the world. And God is about to fulfill what, what he's promised to our nation, the nation of Israel, many, many, many years ago through the prophets. And if you're not ready, you're going to miss it. And so he began to preach a message of repentance. And he was at the Jordan River Valley and uh, the Jordan River Basin, and his name was John. But John was a pretty common name, and so there were lots of people named John. And so if you were named John, you had to have a, have a last name or a nickname. And so he got a nickname, and he became known as John the Baptist. And he was called John the Baptist because the people had never seen this before. John, John would actually invite people down into the Jordan River, and he would say to them, Hey, are you ready to repent of your sin? Are you ready to be cleansed from your sin? Are you ready to identify with this brand new thing that, that God is about to do in your midst? And, and if you're willing to publicly identify with, with what God is about to do, then, then come out into the water with me. And he would actually baptize people there in the Jordan River. And, and many Jews, they'd heard of Gentiles being baptized before. But, but this was odd because if you were a Gentile and you wanted to become Jewish, there, there, you could do it. There was a ceremony that you would go through and there was a meal that you would eat. And, and there was a ceremonial washing where you were cleansing yourself of all your Gentileness and, and trying to take on all of the, the Jewishness that you could to the best of your ability. But this was something that you did on your own. It, it didn't involve a gathering. It didn't involve anybody else. You went and did this on your own. So they'd never seen someone take someone and baptize them. And John the Baptist, he, he, was, he was gritty. And, and he was loud. And he would say, God is up to something new. And the text tells us, that, the gospel writer tells us that, that all of Judea would come out to see him. Like he was getting the attention of everybody. And they all would come out to see him, including the temple leaders. Now, now the temple leaders, you've got, you got to understand this, that by this point in time, the temple, it was so corrupt that, that when Jesus comes on the scene, he, he never really said anything positive about, about the temple for the most part. But the temple leaders would come and they sent some people down to talk to John when they finally got through the crowds. And they, they asked John, are you claiming to be the Messiah? And he looked up at them and said, no, not, not me, but get ready. Get ready because when he shows up, I'm going to be so far away from being worthy to serve, to be in his presence. I, I'm not even going to be good enough to be a servant. I'm not even going to be good enough to, to carry his sandals, to, to lace his sandals for him. Uh, I, I'm just not going to, but something new is coming. And eventually the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders from the city of Jerusalem, they decided to get in on the action. And they decided that they wanted to hear John themselves, so they made their way through the crowd. And when John's out preaching one day and they, they get down, down to where he's at, John sees them and they look at the expression on his face and they realize immediately they've made a big mistake. And John the Baptist, knowing that he would risk his life, say, saying so, he points to the most honored people in that culture, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and he says this to them. He says, you brood of vipers. He calls them a bunch of snakes. 
you bunch of snakes in the grass, basically. You brood of vipers. And the crowd went quiet. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Basically, he said, who told you about this? And then he goes on to say some others. He said, hey, show, show your fruit. Show the deeds that, that you have that keep with repentance. Don't, don't come down here and tell me that you're gonna, what you're going to do. Don't come down here and try and identify with this new thing that, that God's going to do unless you're willing to live it out. If you're not willing to live it out, you just stay up there. You just stay up there. And I know what you're thinking. You're going to tell me, oh, we're children of Abraham. And, and I'm just telling you, John the Baptist, he offended everybody. He would say, you're, we're children of Abraham, God. And, and so God loves us more than he loves everybody else. And, and John would say, God could raise up the children of Abraham out of the stones that you're walking on. So if you're not serious, don't come down here and interrupt me. I'm telling you, everybody went to hear John the Baptist. And when God got things just the way that he wanted them, when, when everybody was just kind of leaning in and, and paying attention, when, when everybody was just riled up enough, one afternoon one of the most dramatic scenes in all of history plays out. All of history plays out. John stops what he's doing and he stares at the hill just above the crowd where, where they've all gathered. And he paused and he says, look, look, it's the Lamb of God. The Lamb that God has provided. The Lamb that comes from God. The Lamb that would take away the sins of the world. Not just, not just for a year. Not just for a day, but for once and for all. He's going to take away the sins of our nation, the sins of the world. Look, John would say, it's the ultimate solution to our ultimate problem. Look, it's the ultimate and permanent fix to our pathetic, sinful, can't-get-it-right existence. We, we won't even keep our own standards conditioned. John says, look, it's the final sacrifice for sin. Look, everything that we have lived for and everything that we have longed for, it's about to culminate in this one person. And years later, an author that we don't know their name writes a letter. Basically, it's a long sermon called Hebrews. It's written to the Jewish people. And after the resurrection of Jesus, whoever wrote this, wrote this looking back. And, and they said this. They said, said this about the Jewish sacrificial system. Because it was such a critical element in the story. Because it was a signpost. If it had not been for the, the Jewish sacrificial system, they, they would not have completely understood the significance of what God was doing through Jesus, what Jesus came to do. And so here's what the author of Hebrews write. He says, the law, the entire law that, that God gave through Moses, says the law is only a shadow. It's just the shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it being the sacrificial system, you know, the one where we kept killing animals year after year after year and month after month and the Day of Atonement and all that stuff, it says it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In other words, this. You could draw near to worship and you could get this sacrificial system right every single time for your entire family. But it wouldn't be enough. It would never be enough. It goes on to say this, it says, But those sacrifices are an annual reminder. It is impossible for the blood and bulls and goats to take away sin. Cover? Yes. Cover temporarily? Yes. Take away? No. Not until John said, look, the Lamb of God, who has come to take upon himself and carry away once and for all the sins of the world. That Jesus came to fulfill and replace this entire sacrificial worship system. There wasn't anything wrong with it. It was pointing to the ultimate solution, to your ultimate problem, your sin, to my ultimate problem, my sin, to our ultimate problem, separation from a holy God who desired to have a relationship with us. But something had to be done about our sin. Sin could no longer just be atoned for. Sin could no longer just be covered up. Sin would be finally forgiven once and for all. 
And this is so incredible. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in these terms. But in an unprecedented reversal that nobody would see coming. There, there was nothing to prepare people for what was about to happen. In an unprecedented reversal, God would sacrifice on behalf of the human race. For thousands of years, humans had been sacrificing in order to get the attention and the blessing of God. For, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been sacrificing to get an atonement for sin. And in this reversal, God would now make this sacrifice. And He would sacrifice Himself on your behalf and on my behalf. And instead of demanding something, something through Jesus, he would offer us something. He would offer peace. He would offer reconciliation. He, he would make it so that you and me, a fallen sinful people, could fit in with a holy and righteous God. F Philip Yancey made a statement in one of his books that just reverberates in my heart every time I think about this topic. He said this. He said, God took a big risk by announcing forgiveness ahead of time. God took a big risk when he communicated to you and to me, when he communicated to our generation and the generation before us, hey, I'm announcing forgiveness ahead of time. You can tell your children before they ever sin, God has provided a way of forgiveness. God, God took a big risk in the first century announcing forgiveness ahead of time, but that's exactly what he did. And in the course of one afternoon, when Jesus died on the cross, worship changed forever. It would no longer involve a sacrifice to appease the gods or even to appease our God. It wouldn't be a sacrifice to atone for sin anymore. Uh, under Christian worship, everything changed because Christian worship would now be about a time to remember. A time to remember the sacrifice that had already been made on our behalf. Look, we don't gather to call the gods down, right? We don't gather here on a Sunday morning to call the gods down or to call God down. We gather because God already came down. And Christian worship, it's a time of celebration. It should be emotional. Really, our, our worship should, should involve some emotion. It, it's why we sing. It's why people write lyrics that say over and over and over and, and in fresh and new and modern ways what the church has been singing and celebrating since the beginning of time. It's why we sing and it's why we celebrate on the first day of the week instead of the Sabbath. We celebrate on Sunday, the first day of the week, because the first day of the week is when Jesus rose from the dead. It's when he punctuated all of the claims that he made about himself. That's what, that's what every Sunday celebration should be. It should be emotional because we're celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Which meant that everything that he said was true. It's what, that what he taught about God was true. That what he said about himself was true. That what he said about eternal life is true. That what he taught us about loving each other and how we should treat each other is true. Because listen, if a man predicts his own death and predicts his own resurrection and he comes through on it, right? You listen to what he says, right? That's what Jesus did. And here's the big departure in some ways from, and perhaps maybe the way that, that you grew up with worship or as worship was explained to you, is that Christian worship, it doesn't end when the worship service ends. It doesn't end at 12 o'clock on Sunday afternoon when we go out to lunch or when we go to dinner. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't end then. Jesus' sacrifice, it, it should inform all of our decisions every day. Every day, every single day, and I've said this before, but I think it's pertinent here. If what we do in here on Sunday morning doesn't make a difference on Monday afternoon, then we've missed the boat. What we do here should inform all of our, the rest of our week. It should make a difference on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And I'm just telling you, if you don't like coming to church on Sunday mornings, you're not going to like heaven very much. All right? Like, think about that. Like, heaven's where we all want to get to, right? 
I mean, I don't know anybody that ever says, hey, I, I want to go to hell. No, everybody says, when I die, I want to go to heaven. And I'm telling you, if you don't like what we do on Sunday mornings, if it doesn't make, make a difference Monday through Saturday, you're not going to like heaven very much. Worship is a powerful, powerful thing. And it should inform all of our days every week. We should live with the celebration and the remembrance that is associated with the life of Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to Christians living in Rome, he made this extraordinary statement about the way that, that we're to worship. He said this in chapter 12. He said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and in light of what God has already done for you, and, and you don't have to do anything, no, no more sacrifices are necessary. He says, in view of God's mercy, offer your, offer your bodies, your, your living, your, your relationships, your, your decisions, your, your finances, your money, your time. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, that that is your true and proper worship. This is how Christians are supposed to worship. They gather to, to remember, and they gather to celebrate. And then they go and they live in such a way that their lives reflect this extraordinary gift that God has given to us through Christ. In light of God's sacrifice to you, offering yourself as a sacrifice to God, it's the logical, it's, it's, it's the reasonable thing for us to do, right? So in addition to celebrating, and in addition to remembering, we also submit. God submitted himself to us by sending his son to die for us. So why would we not submit to him in return? God is for us, right? So why should I not be for God in my daily living, every day in all of our ways? And communion, as we're about to experience here in a few moments, it captures all three of those things. Because in these next few moments, we're going to remember and we're going to celebrate what Christ did for us. And then we're going to submit to what His love requires of us. So in these next few moments, however you want to process it, let's remember. And let's celebrate. And then when we leave today, let's, let's live our lives in such extraordinary ways that it reflects this extraordinary, extraordinary gift that God has given to us when He sent, look, the Lamb of God, who comes to pick up and carry away all of your sin and all of mine.